Our gospel lesson this morning is from the gospel according to Luke, the ninth chapter, verses 28 through 43a. About eight days after Jesus said these things, he took Peter, John, and James and went up on a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes flashed white like lightning. Two men, Moses and Elijah, were talking with him. They were clothed with heavenly splendor and spoke about Jesus' departure, which he would achieve in Jerusalem. Peter and those with him were almost overcome by sleep, but they managed to stay awake and saw his glory as well as the two men with him. As the two men were about to leave Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good that we're here. We should construct three shrines, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. But he didn't know what he was saying. Peter was still speaking when a cloud overshadowed them. As they entered the cloud, they were overcome with awe. Then a voice from the cloud said, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. Even as the voice spoke, Jesus was found alone. They were speechless and at the time told no one what they had seen. The next day, when Jesus, Peter, John, and James had come down from the mountain, a large crowd met Jesus. A man from the crowd shouted, Teacher, I beg you to take a look at my son, my only child. Look, a spirit seizes him, and without any warning, he screams. It shakes him and causes him to foam at the mouth. It tortures him and rarely leaves him alone. I begged your disciples to throw it out, but they couldn't. Jesus answered, You faithless and crooked generation, how long will I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him down and shook him violently. Jesus spoke harshly to the unclean spirit, healed the child, and gave him back to his father. Everyone was overwhelmed by God's greatness. It's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. The writer Charles Swindoll once found himself with too many commitments in too few days. He got nervous and tense about it. He was snapping at his wife and children, choking down his food at mealtimes, and feeling irritated every time there was an unexpected interruption in his day. He recalls in his book Stress Fractures that before long, things around their home started reflecting the pattern of his hurry-up lifestyle. He said the situation was becoming unbearable. Then it happened. After supper one evening, his younger daughter, Colleen, wanted to tell him something important that had happened to her at school that day. She began hurriedly. Daddy, I want to tell you something. I'll tell you really fast. Suddenly realizing her frustration, Swindoll answered, Honey, you can tell me, and you don't have to tell me really fast. Say it slowly. He has never forgotten her answer. Then listen slowly. I can hear God's voice saying to Peter, James, and John, This is my son. Listen to him. Slow down. Don't be so quick to move things your way, to shape the world as you see it, Peter. Don't be so quick to climb the corporate ladder to join the rat pack and be number one, John. Don't try to beat your colleagues to the first position, James. Slow down. My son is trying to show you another way, another world, another kingdom, if you will listen slowly. 
Jesus takes Peter, James, and John up on a mountaintop. In the Bible, important things happen on mountaintops. Moses receives the Ten Commandments on top of a mountain. Noah's Ark comes to rest on top of a mountain. Moses sees the Promised Land from on top of a mountain. Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount on top of a mountain. So we know as we're reading this that something big is about to happen. We also know that because when something important is happening, Peter, James, and John are the three disciples who are going to be involved. They were sort of an inner circle. I don't want to say they were Jesus' favorites because I don't really think Jesus had favorites. But there was something about those three men that when Jesus really wanted to get serious, when something important was going to happen, those were the three he called on. Those were the three that he took with them. And so he goes up on the mountain to pray. And he brings Peter, James, and John with him. And while they're up there, Jesus is transfigured. They see Jesus in all his glory. We've been in the season after Epiphany. And we talked about back with the coming of the wise men that Epiphany is all about the different ways in which we see Jesus revealed to us. And on this last Sunday in that season, we see Jesus' most defining revelation to the disciples. They see him in all his glory. Not only do they see Jesus in all his glory, but they see Moses and Elijah standing there talking to Jesus. Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, the two together representing all of what was the scripture at that time. And the disciples, Peter, James, and John, well, I was about to say they were dumbstruck, except for the fact that one of them wasn't. They are in awe. And Peter, being Peter, bless his heart, comes up with a brilliant idea that he just has to share. Lord, this is fantastic. Let's build shrines. Let's build booths. Let's build tents. We could stay up here forever. This is great. Luke charitably makes the comment that Peter didn't really know what he was saying. And I don't think Peter, I think probably at that point, Peter was so in awe and so overwhelmed by what he was seeing that in fact his mouth was running without the benefit of his brain. As Peter is speaking, God doesn't wait for Peter to finish. As Peter's still speaking, God breaks in. <clears throat> this is my son. Listen to him. Stop what you're doing. Stop running your mouth. Listen to him. And then it was all gone. That fast it was over. But Peter and James and John saw something that they would never forget. And three of the four Gospels tell this story. John is the only Gospel that doesn't tell it. And probably part of the reason why John's Gospel doesn't tell this story 
is because John's whole gospel focuses on the divinity of Christ. So he doesn't necessarily need to show us that Jesus is divine because the whole gospel does that. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell this story of when they saw Jesus in all his glory. There are times when we get to go to the mountaintop. Maybe it's a literal mountaintop, maybe it's not. But we talk sometimes about mountaintop experiences, times and places where we feel particularly close to God, where maybe we feel God speak a word to our hearts. The Celtic referred to it as thin places, places where you can go, where you can be with God, where, where you really feel a real sense of God's presence. And those are amazing and wonderful times. I've had that experience on retreats. Um, I've had that experience. I, I've been participating in the Walk to Emmaus for many years now. Uh, some of you know Larry Pickering, I know, was involved in Curcio. And Curcio and Walk to Emmaus are basically same thing, different names, a little bit different structure, but it's the same basic idea. And I've had mountaintop experiences on that. I've had mountaintop experiences on literal mountaintops. I, the mountains were kind of the first place where I really was overwhelmed by the beauty of God's creation. Where I looked around at what I was looking at and really knew in my heart of hearts that, that those trees and that beauty didn't come to be on its own, but that God had to have created it. Those mountaintop experiences are wonderful. They're important, they're helpful. They can help keep us going sometimes, and they become wonderful memories to look back on. But if we try to stay on the mountaintop, we miss the point. Because there's work to be done in the valley. And God is God not only of the mountaintop, but God is God of the valley below. And so in our scripture, we see Jesus and the disciples come down off the mountain into the valley, and immediately Jesus is confronted with work. A boy who is demon-possessed. And y'all, I, I read this, and I, I think I've told y'all that Maggie has epilepsy. And I read this passage, and in Jesus' day, they didn't know about things like epilepsy. They knew demon possession. And if you've ever seen somebody fall out with a grand mal seizure, Demon possession is not a bad second guess as to what's going on there. It really isn't. They're scary, scary things. I'm thinking that this boy probably had epilepsy. And the disciples didn't know what to make of it, and the father didn't know what to make of it. All they had in their, in their mind was that it, it had to be a demon. Something caused him to fall on the ground, to foam at the mouth, to, to seize up, and threw him down. It was terrifying. I can only imagine the poor father watching this happening over and over and over again, unable to help his son. Brings the boy to the disciples, the other nine who are down below, and they can't do a thing for him. But the man doesn't give up hope. He comes to Jesus. He begs Jesus for help. And Jesus helps. 
he casts the demon out of the boy. And the boy is well and goes on his way. There is work in the valley. We are needed. We, we need those mountaintop experiences, but we need those mountaintop experiences to give us the fuel to do the work in the valley. Because in the valley, people are hurting. In the valley, people have needs. In the valley, they need to hear about Jesus. John Wesley, the, the founder of our Methodist movement, was an Anglican priest and deeply pious. He went on a missionary journey to Savannah, Georgia. It was a disaster. He writes in his journal afterwards, on my return to England, January 1738, being in imminent danger of death and very uneasy on that account, I was strongly convinced that the cause of, the, of that uneasiness was unbelief, and gaining a true living faith was the one thing needful for me. But still, I fixed not, on, not this faith on its right object. I had only faith in God, not faith through Christ. Y'all, Wesley had been an Anglican priest for 10 years at that point. And yet he struggled to know who God was and had not yet fully recognized Jesus in his heart of hearts. In 1738, Wesley shifted his focus from a yearning for God to looking intently for the face of Jesus. When he began to see God present through Jesus, he wrote in his journal, In the evening, in May 1738, I went very unwillingly to a home group on Aldersgate Street, where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle on Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, and Christ alone for salvation. The next morning, Wesley got up, he wrote this in his journal. The moment I awakened, Jesus' master was in my heart and in my mouth, and I found all of my strength lay in keeping my eyes fixed upon him and my soul waiting on him continually. Wesley had his mountaintop experience. Notice that he has it at a Bible study that he goes to very unwillingly. He dragged himself to this Bible study, y'all. He didn't want to go. He makes no bones about the fact he didn't want to be there. But something made him go. And because he went and was in that place at that time, God touched his heart in a way that he had never been touched before. But Wesley didn't just hold that good news, that that warm heart to himself. That heart strangely warmed fueled his ministry for the rest of his life. And we're here over 200, almost 300 now years later, in large part because of his efforts, because of his preaching, because of his evangelizing, because of his telling people about what God had done for him that we could know what God could do for us. The purpose of the mountaintop is to give us fuel. 
to give us strength, to give us courage. Because the situation in the valley can get tough. Hard things happen in the valley. Losses happen in the valley. Difficult situations that we go through happen in the valley. The 23rd Psalm talks about passing through the valley of the shadow of death. And it is a valley that we will all have to pass through sooner or later. I want to close with a story um, from Father John Powell that he told about a young man, Tommy, who was a student in his class. And the class title was The Theology of Faith. Tommy turned out to be the atheist in resonance in Father Powell's course. He constantly objected to, smirked at, or whined about the possibility of an unconditionally loving Father God. At the end of the course, Tommy asked in a slightly cynical tone, Do you think I'll ever find God? Powell decided on a little shock therapy. No, he said. Oh, Tommy responded. I thought that was the product you were pushing. Powell let him get five steps from the door and then called out. Tommy, I don't think you will ever find him, but I'm absolutely certain he will find you. He shrugged a little, left Powell's class and his life. Later, Powell heard a report that Tom had graduated, and he was grateful. Then a sad report. Tommy had a terminal illness. Before Powell could search him out, Tommy came to see him. Powell said, Tommy, I've thought about you so often. I hear you are sick. Oh, yes, Tommy said, very sick. Powell, can you talk about it? Sure. What would you like to know? What's it like to be only 24 and dying? Well, it could be worse. Like what? Powell asked. Well, like being 50 and having no values or ideals. Like being 50 and thinking that booze and making money are the real biggies in life. But I really came to see you about, Tom said, is something you said to me on the last day of class. I asked you if you thought I would ever find God, and you said no, which surprised me. Then you said, but he will find you. I thought about that a lot even though my search for God was not at all intense at that time. One day I woke up and decided to spend what time I had doing something more profitable. I thought about you and your class and remembered something else you said. The essential sadness is to go through life without living. But it would be almost equally sad to go through life and leave this world without ever telling those you loved that you had loved them. So I began with the hardest one, my dad. He was reading the newspaper when I approached him. Dad? Yes, what? He asked without lowering the newspaper. Dad, I'd like to talk with you. We'll talk. I mean, it's really important. The newspaper came down three slow inches. What is it? Dad, I love you. 
I just wanted you to know that. The newspaper fluttered to the floor. Then my father did two things I could not remember him ever doing before. He cried and he hugged me. It felt so good to be close to my father, to see his tears, to feel his hug, to hear him say that he loved me. It was easier with my mother and little brother. We shared things we had been keeping secret for so many years. Then one day I turned around and God was there. Apparently God does things in his own way and at his own hour. But the important thing is that he was there. He found me. You were right. He found me even after I stopped looking for him. Tommy, you are saying something very important and much more universal than you realize. You are saying that the surest way to find God is not to make himself a private possession, a problem solver, but rather by opening yourself to his love. God found Tommy when Tommy was willing to love. God found Tommy in the valley. Wesley would call this provenient grace. Wesley was a firm believer that God comes looking for us, whether we're looking for God or not. God looks for us. God calls us to him. God is calling us. God calls us from the mountaintop and God calls us from the valley. God loves us. God wants a relationship with us. The disciples didn't know it, but what they got on the top of that mountain was a foretaste of the glory that they would see at the resurrection. They needed to listen. They needed to know that God was there, that God was in Jesus, that God was Jesus. And that God was doing something new in him and through him for all of us. Whether you are on top of the mountain this morning or whether you're down in the valley below, know that God is with you, that God is calling to you, that God loves you. Embrace God. Embrace his love. And share that love with those around you. Amen. Amen.